Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Filmed in Canada, a podcast about Canadian movies. My name is Alexander Cairns, and once again, William Lee is not here to join me, but we do have uh, Nathan Douglas back with us again. So, how you doing, Nathan? Hello. Um, you know, insert obligatory joke about how it's been so long since we've seen each other, like all people on it's podcasts been years. do. It's been years. Um, Finally out of the desert. It's been years, despite the fact that these will be released a few weeks yeah. from each other. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I, I, I was reading about this this Mandela effect thing. Have you, okay. heard, about, have you read about this? No. So I guess there was a thing on the internet where... A bunch of people thought that Nelson Mandela had died in prison mm-hmm. as opposed to like a few years ago. And this was like a very like deep seated memory in their minds. Oh, wow. So, and so people now use this concept of the Mandela effect to just explain away yeah. any, any kind of like, like there was an example of like, um, people thinking that Sinbad was in a, I was going like, to say yeah, that was Shazam, in, was in a genie movie, yeah. but it was definitely Shaq. And so it's just yeah. people's racial ins- insensitivities of thinking that Sinbad and Shaq are the same person yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And so they are, are able to just explain that away by saying, Oh, well there must be these two alternate realities where Sinbad actually was in a genie movie, yeah. but it just got erased from history. <laughs> Like that, it's a legitimate thing. So the Mandela yeah, yeah, yeah. effect explains that there are that there are alternate realities, and you can you can like remember things that didn't exist, and like that's okay. So that's wild. I don't know. I don't know why it made me think of that, but I guess alternate realities timelines not lining up. We've yeah. It's, it's been years since we've seen each other, but we're out of the slipstream now. <laughs> Anyway, it has been moments since we last spoke about Jesus of Montreal, but uh, longer than that in podcast time. And we are back to talk about Nathan's film work as a director and perhaps as a producer as well. I don't know, Mm -hmm. but we'll see where it goes. But um, I was thinking we could start with the... um, I guess the only of your of your films that I've seen in a theater, which was Cave of Size at mm-hmm. the Vancouver International Film Festival last year. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe if you don't want to just give me a, give us a, a synopsis. Synopsis, yeah, yeah, sure. So it's a short film, it's ten minutes long. It's a it's about a couple, a man and a woman, who um, they meet at a club and they're coming back to her place for a hookup, and uh, the power is out conveniently, so they decide to light candles in order to see their way around the place. And essentially the film is about the, them making their way from the front door to the bedroom. Um, and along the way, they encounter these religious icons, icons of saints and angels, um, Jesus, Mary. And uh, these paintings kind of catch the eye of, of the man and they start talking about what they mean. And, and, and yeah, so the film is this kind of dialogue over these religious objects that are part of her family's heritage but it also calls out something within him and, and it's in within this, this setting that's very dark and moody. Uh, I mean, I can say what I think the film is about. I don't want to maybe just uh, throw it out there, but like essentially it's a film that plays with the question of what are, what do we desire? What are our desires really about? Where are they coming from? When we say we want one thing, what do we, what are we actually wanting? Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's been a while since I've seen it. I, I unfortunately didn't get an opportunity to rewatch it before we talked here. But um, just kind of revisiting and recounting my experience of watching it at the film festival, um, I found 
I found it to be again kind of like we were alluding to or what how I was alluding to in our discussion of Jesus of Montreal not really having that much connection to Christianity or or these religious icons that are in your film um, I mean obviously I like I know who Jesus is whatever but mm-hmm. um, am I, you're allowed to say Jesus right yeah of course yeah you just can't it's you taking can't, his name in vain right. and using it as a swear word <laughs> okay. that's yeah. wrong um, yeah. I do do that unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> I forgive you. Um, so, the yeah, what what I what I was struck by was, um, I guess, just the struggle of of the characters and um, their internal conflict, mm-hmm. which I guess is related in some way to to these religious ideologies, but. Mm-hmm. As someone who who doesn't really connect to that, I was still able to connect with the the actors and the the characters and their their struggle with you know should we should we engage in this act or should we not and um, you know that's something that um, that I think is broadly relatable outside of the religious context. But you were able to weave in those discussions very very naturally mm-hmm. and and in a way that didn't feel isolating in any way mm-hmm. um so i don't know maybe you can you can kind of speak to the the process of kind of what like what, what images you picked and yeah, how sure. how you how in the script writing process like were you were you conscious of a non-religious audience or that those yeah of absolutely um i tried to be uh I, I, the film for me originated a few years ago as a comedy actually okay uh and i was going to call it Vol- bolgakov's cave um bolgakov is a reference to sergey bolgakov um, who is a Eastern Orthodox a Russian um, theologian, and he actually wrote he wrote on the theology of icons, so of the images of saints and um, of Christ and the Mother of God um, in um, you know Eastern Christian uh, theology. Icons they're not just images, they're not just um, paintings. You know, they actually they're meant to be aids to prayer, and th- this goes for Roman Catholics as well. But you know. There's obviously differences in the tradition and how we approach the art forms in terms of how we craft them and stuff like that. Uh, like in the West, statuary is much more is, is common as well as painting, right? But in the East, Eastern Christian traditions, typically it's icons only, mm-hmm. painting paintings, and and painted in a very flat iconographic style. Right. So perspective does not play a role. Renaissance perspective doesn't play a role. It's just that um, you know, kind of pre i guess you'd say pre-renaissance form um anyway in the theology of eastern christian icons you they're meant to be aids to prayer so the the um the thinking is that they when you're before an icon you're actually kind of at a window into heaven in a in a spiritual sense in a metaphysical sense Mm -hmm. um and so like reality you know because we uh, christians believe reality you know is not just everything that you see in, in sense with your senses uh, reality is actually much more than that. And that's, you know, of course, the realm of the spiritual. We sort of loosely summarize that. Um, and, it, and, it's, and it's not separate from the world that we live in. Like, you know, everything, like what we understand as reality, the world we, you know, everything from the world that we're in or the um, the things that, that we can't see, you know, that, that would fall under the realm of spiritual. Like everything's interconnected, of course. Right. Um, anyway, um, so Bulgakov wrote about this, theology of of um 
of icons and, and sort of them being windows into heaven, I believe. Uh, I forget exactly the, the essay that I read on it, but it really struck me at the time. And so I thought of calling it Bobakov's Cave as a, as a nerdy play on Plato's Cave, the whole okay. idea of the, the Plato's Cave and the way that people... Um, I'm going to mangle this because I, I never <laughs> remember how this goes exactly. So if you do know the theorem there, please uh, jump Some, in. Something to do with... with like seeing like, your shadow. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really know. Essentially, like, some form of knowledge, like, mankind is some form of knowledge of who he is by seeing his shadow within the cave. Right. I think that's probably broad enough to yeah. cover it. If not, I apologize. But uh, I wanted to sort of just, anyway, it was just a reference to that, to, like, this idea that you go into these, on, you know, going into an enclave in this film, this space of intimacy that is cut off from the world, the rest of the world, and allows you to kind of face things that you wouldn't face otherwise you face things that require retreat require meditation uh requires yeah the distractions that normally hit us everywhere to be cut off mm-hmm. um anyway so that idea like i said originally it was this comedy it was kind of like this this like silly comedy and then it wasn't working at all so i put it aside and i um i was actually at a screening at vif in uh 2015 i was watching tom anderson's film uh the thoughts that once we were Okay. And uh, I just, I was really, really, it's a very interesting film, but I just really was not into it. And I was totally outside of it. And I, my mind just started to wander. But I think there was an image, one of the f- films that I saw, because he collects a lot of clips from other films in that, in that, in that documentary. Mm. Um, Is he were, the guy that did make, or, uh, Los Angeles plays itself. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. 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 And, uh, and so there was a scene with candlelight. I think it was candlelighting. So I was about to say Vancouver never plays itself because that's yeah. the play on <laughs> that's the, Yeah, exactly. Um, and I was just so struck that by the candlelighting and all of a sudden this idea came back to me and I was like, Oh my gosh, they're, they're doing all this with candles. And for some reason, like that renewed the idea. All of a sudden I knew by the end of that screening, I had re- re- rewritten the film entirely okay. mentally and I just knew I was going to make it. And, and then we went forward a few months later and made it. Nice. Um, but was yeah. it, was it, was it the clip that Devin showed me from, it was it a John Ford film or no, no, he, uh, so my director of photography, Devin Scott was, uh, he's, uh, we're both heavily influenced by John Ford. Um, yeah. but he, in terms of lighting, setting up the candle lighting, he was inspired by the grapes of wrath, right. which has a lot of very stark, which was shot by Greg Tolan, who also shot Citizen Kane yeah. among other things. Um, and, and so he was really inspired by the candle lighting techniques there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for some reason, this whole candle idea just reinvigorated the whole thing. And I realized, I think what, what it was missing was this this sense of intimacy and of mystery and the sense I wanted to create with it, you know, um, was going kind of like walking into a really dark cathedral, you know, in the night and you were lighting a votive candle at at an altar or, you know, at one of the uh, side altars, you know, like you see in the movies or or if you've happened to be in in a Catholic parish or an Orthodox church, like Mm -hmm. you'll, you'll see the candle stands and, and wanting to like capture that. Yeah. That act of, you know, lighting a candle is a prayer. Right for uh, you know, lighting a candle is a is a form of praying, even a very small one, but it's so it's still very powerful, and um, kind of putting it in the hands of these characters who aren't religious or if maybe they are, they used to be, even if just in their family lives. Yeah, they just have more of a um, tangential relationship to it. Yeah, like a lot of people, yeah. uh, there a lot of young people, you know, are are very like kind of we were talking about in the last talk, like secularized uh, generation. Um, or they might, you know, there's, there's this very common theme of, like, organized religion is not something that appeals to a lot of younger people. Right. Um, and, and, I mean, I used I count myself among that. I used to be very much in that 
in that area and um, went through a process of uh, searching all that out and, and ended up becoming a Catholic. <laughs> yeah. So that, that changed for me, but it uh, I totally remember what it felt like to be in that boat. And, and yeah, I mean, I really feel deeply, you know, kind of the generation that I'm part of, you know, the millennials, like I was born in 89 just for reference. And there's, you know, that sense of searching, like we are, I think we are really searching for something and, and not necessarily finding it. I mean, as a, as a culture, mm-hmm. millennial culture, in a sense, I know people like to beat up on it, but I, I really have nothing but compassion for, you know, my peers and, and kind of just everything, even just being caught between the digital worlds and the analog worlds. And like, you know, um, at least the first half of the millennial, probably most of the millennial generation, but certainly anyone born from like 1980 until probably what 1994 mm-hmm. can remember what the pre-digital world was like. Yeah, with enough like foot in that to go, okay, like I could maybe go back to that, but really, really you can't. Yeah, um, I haven't really tried that hard, but but it is there's this kind of sense of futility of like this is what real life was. And this is how I'm living now. And I think I've labored for a long time under the assumption that I will go back to someday. One day Facebook will die. One day Twitter will die. And I will, you know, go back to just how it was before. But but I don't know if that's actually going to happen. Right. <laughs> anyway, so uh, for me, one of the big concerns is, yeah, generationally, like, what are we searching for? What do we want? What are, what are our desires? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, there's a question of, like, sex, too, right? Which right. is, you know, we're living in a, in a culture that is, you know, very sex well, some people would argue otherwise, but, you know, from what I can see, like the term of, se- you know, sex positivity, um, and, and I say that as someone who, you know, I believe that sex is for, should be reserved for marriage. Um, the film is kind of coming from this perspective of like, what are we really looking for when we seek out these kind of um, superficial relationships, like hookups and things like that? Yeah. Um, and, and. Um, what are we, yeah, I, I just, I'm really interested in that. And it's, and I'm not removed from, from that whole, like, you know, that longing, that desire, you know, to connect with another person in that, in that way. Like, yeah. really for me, the film only came about because, you know, um, I, I'm not involved in the hookup scene and I never have been, but there was a period when I was, um, kind of leading up to writing it when I was really like, you know, wondering like, what if I had made some decisions earlier in life and, and kind of, dipped my toes into that world and and so on who would i be now you know um i'm glad that i didn't but i really you know there was it's like anyone can get involved in in any kind of activity right and and for for me the film was kind of partly coming to terms with realizing like even even though i made decisions when i was younger to try to um you know live life a certain way um the the older i got it didn't get easier to you know to sort of live that way um it, it, so yeah for me the film kind of comes out of a struggle in some ways to try to live chastely yeah you know uh chastely in the sense of um not just like not having sex outside of marriage but also there's a positive aspect to it not just the negative of like denying yourself this thing but also the positive aspect of integrating it with your entire being in that mm-hmm. humans you know whether you're having sex or not we are constantly kind of looking for opportunities to give of ourselves yeah you know in different ways yeah and and watching it and and again you know i haven't seen it in a long time but um i i, I didn't come away with it thinking oh this person thinks that you know sex before marriage is is a sin and and you know that that you know i'm going to hell or whatever like okay. that, <laughs> and, that, and that might be and that might be what you believe but 
um, but it's not it's not contained within within the text of the story. And so, mm-hmm. and so I, I appreciated that um, you know it it had this nuanced understanding of you know just kind of observing these people and mm-hmm. letting them make their own choices as opposed to um, telling them what sorts of choices they should make or, or forcing choices upon them. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, like separate from those religious icons, you could, you I feel like you could sense a similar kind of, interaction happening between two non-religious people mm. or or you you know you could you could create the same kind of film without the religious icons it wouldn't have the same sort of resonance that i mm. think it does but um I, I guess what i'm saying is watching it 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 connected it connected with me and i was able to uh, engage with it despite perhaps differences having, of having, belief uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. I will say for the record, like I, I have shown it to some friends and, and have received comments like it is not. Some people have responded that they think it's definitely not sex positive right. enough for their um, preference. They think it is kind of uh, prudish, I guess you could say, in in kind of that. And I can understand what they mean by that. But I guess the thing I want to highlight, like all throughout. Yeah. Like when you asked about making a film for a non-religious audience, that is my audience. You know, mm-hmm. um, I don't make films for one or the other i make films for anybody really but my concern is like you know i i experienced enough of like christian subcultures in terms of of media culture growing up to see that it's that's a world that i never want to be part of right you know it's it's nothingness and yeah you know i uh, do you know a podcast called battleship retention no (laughs) um yeah it's just two two buddies that talk about movies whatever okay typical yeah kind of Another one? Internet no. podcast, yeah, exactly. But, um, <laughs> I, I've listened to it for like, God, like five or six years at this point, probably. But um, the one, one of the hosts, uh, Tyler Smith, he is, uh, he's Christian, and mm. he has he has another podcast called um, More Than One Lesson, okay. where he looks at different films through a Christian con- through a Christian lens, and and it typically pairs them together. But yeah. he's like a very vocal outspoken individual when it comes to Christian film oh, yes. quotes and yep. um, just the, the lack of nuance and, and the, the just generally awful storytelling that exists yep. within that world. Um, and, and he go like, he's he even goes to conventions and, and uh, like Christian film conventions wow. or like Christian conventions and speaks about, yeah. you know, the fact that you can, you can watch, I guess the word would be secular films yeah, 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 yeah. and still get something out of them or, yeah. you know, you can, you, like, it doesn't have to be this black and white thing. Yeah. Wow. It's this interesting. Like, I, I don't know if, I don't know him, but I, I definitely, a lot of my formation as a film viewer came through various Christian arts, okay. like organizations that were doing exactly the same work in terms of like, essentially like evangelizing Christian audiences to like, yeah, to to like non Christian cinema, right? Yeah. Which is to say, the vast majority of cinema, right? Um, and and not even just and a lot of that involved, of course, like um, typically that, that typically that involves acclimating people to foreign cinema. Um, may still have very overt spiritual themes and stuff. Usually, you know, the, the great classics of of European art house cinema that cross with spiritual subjects and stuff, mm-hmm. but it, or, or other areas too. 
Um, I just find that interesting. Like, yeah, I definitely count myself amongst that sort of. I, sorry, I'm just I'm just getting the sense of of like watching like the Decalogue as like a 12 year old <laughs> just oh, being no, completely no, overwhelmed no. by it. <laughs> like that, I did that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm oh, just no. I'm just trying. I'm just having if this only, image in my mind. If only, no, <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> yeah, um, the uh, actually, well, for me, it was like like pretty much everyone else on the internet it was roger ebert you know in his great movies collection basically that opened up for me like the wider canon of of kind of like great cinema yeah and then exploring from there but then after going after kind of having that foundation i found i'm just going to summarize like as the arts and faith world there's actually a a very long-running message board called arts and faith um which uh it has it's mostly populated by uh, Christian film critics. And um, I got, I started reading that when I was like, I don't know, 19 or 20. Okay. And, and, but a lot of those critics I was reading beforehand, people like Jeffrey Overstreet, Peter Chataway. Um, uh, there's a few others. And then some who, um, you know, write for non-Christian outlets, uh, Darren Hughes. Um, and uh, anyway, there's this long history going back with the board, but you know, a lot of my formation and taste was kind of formed through reading their thoughts and, and seeing the different mix of opinions there. And there was a lot of, and, and, you know, on the flip side, there is a lot of kind of, you know, you can get very caught up in this kind of niche project of like trying to convince other Christians to watch non-Christian cinema. Uh, personally, I mean, it's something that I'm, I'm engaged with at a personal level, like with friends, like, you know, I want, but that's, I see that as more as like a friend thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, I want to share the films that mean the most to me with my friends, mm-hmm. whether they're believers or not. But then also people who are, who are Christians who lo- are interested in cinema, like I want to show them these certain films because they, these are the films that speak the most deeply to me, stuff like Malik or Tarkovsky or Eric Romer. Right. And, uh, and I feel like it, because they speak to me at that level with kind of the extra religious layer, they'll speak to other, other religious people as well. Um, but I, I definitely, at this point in my life, I do not feel a burden to like go to the non-Christian or go to the Christian masses and like, and sort of be like, Oh, watch more non-Christian stuff because right. I think it's just a recipe for, uh, it, you know, I, I'm, I'm just going to make films, you yeah. know, that I like <laughs> yeah. and, and the stuff that I, you know, I hope people, people who feel who connect with them will come along the way, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not concerned about trying to, I, I just want it to be true to like, to what, to what I'm feeling as I make it, um, to, to be true to the characters, to be true to, um, creating beauty, you know, creating this, uh, this opportunity for people to encounter a mystery that is beyond them. Yeah. Um, and I think that goes beyond, just one of the things I struggled with when I was younger was this kind of idea. It's like, Oh, well for something to be powerful, it has to be ambiguous. Um, but I think it really depends on, it all kind of depends on how a filmmaker handles it. You know, ambiguous doesn't necessarily mean meaningful, you know? Um, I'm thinking of like the polar opposite of that being something like, I don't know, Lars von Trier, Oh yeah, like his, especially his endings are very blunt and very to the point. Yeah, and I I get a lot out of them. Okay, yeah, um, but yeah, I can, I can certainly appreciate a, a, a level of ambiguity as well. Or, yeah, you know, on the on the opposite end of that, something like Lynch or. Okay, yeah, yeah, man, I got I'm so behind on Lynch. Oh really? Yeah, this yeah. summer has been my conversion. I mean, I haven't uh, 
I haven't watched anything yet, but I, I just have been really not not interested in Lynch, and now it's the, okay. the mania, and everybody I know is just constantly talking about it. So I'm yeah, like, okay, yeah. okay, that's, that's basically like that. That was like my gestation yeah. as a as a, a cinephile. Yeah, I was, I was oh, watching wow. Lynch when I was like 15 years old. Oh my goodness, obsessing okay. over it and like going to see Inland Empire three times in the theaters. Like, Whoa, <laughs> on on film, no less. Uh, too. It was a 35 millimeter print. Yeah, it would so have been. I, yeah, yeah, 2006. yeah. So he, it would have been shot digitally and then, yeah, and then that's incredible. Digital, yeah, that's or awesome. transferred to film. Yeah, um, but uh, well, although although when they screened it at, at the Van City Theater recently, that was that was, was film. film as well. Yeah, yeah that, I missed that, that. Was from his personal collection. Wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The thing that got me thinking I really need to see this, I guess, is uh, one thing Darren Hughes wrote about. He always writes about how Lynch. Darren Hughes is one uh, of the one of the Christian critics. You well, he, he's not anymore, but he's oh, okay. uh, as far as I know. But he, um, like he, he still posts on the message board. But okay. he writes for Senses of Cinema, which yeah. is a, an amazing film journal. Yeah. Um, and uh, but he's often tweeting about Lynch Lynch's approach to sorrow. Okay. And again, I, I've only seen Mulholland Drive and I slept through part of it and this was years and years ago. <laughs> yeah. And so like, don't take my word for it. I, I, you know, I didn't, I haven't detected any of this, but I've, my experience has been very limited, but, but the way that he says like Lynch approaches sorrow yeah. and sort of um, human suffering and humans, human brutality, you know, it's from, this, it's from this very sorrowful, humane kind of understanding. And I find that very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. No, it's, um, he's constantly contrasting just like the highest levels of absurdism and surrealism with just these very blunt Mm. and like just almost unbearable. um, I don't know what word I'm looking for, but just these, these scenes that are just so impactful and emotional. Mm. Um, Like if if, with Mulholland drive, when, um, when Naomi Watts does the, does the um the audition if you remember that was it with the cowboy no i slept through all the cowboy stuff okay, like yeah, i was yeah, no, like so, so 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 she's preparing for this audition that she okay. has and it's and it's very sort of arch and melodramatic okay and um you know she's holding this knife and whatever but then um when she goes in to perform the scene in front of in front of the uh the producers of the film yeah. it's it's just like so uh impactful but anyway um i don't i don't want to get lost track it lost uh, talking about Lynch for too long, but um, especially if you haven't seen his films, <laughs> um, <laughs> more incentive too. <laughs> yes, exactly. But um, just back to your stuff, uh, I wanted to, uh, if we can set up a framework for the rest of our discussion yeah. so we don't get sidetracked, um, and that's just wanting to keep things clear in my own head. Yeah, not not any comment on you. Um, I will sidetrack us. Yeah, exactly. every opportunity. Um, I wanted to talk about some of the barbershop, and then I wanted to transition to talk to talking about uh lynch and speed racer or sorry not lynch um i want to talk about malik and speed racer oh my goodness <laughs> <laughs> if we can we'll see if we can get to it but um, can we yes. not talk about my films and just talk about malik and speed racer yeah exactly <laughs> um so yeah so let's rush through son in the barbershop yeah <laughs> all right it's a one-shot film the end okay yeah exactly <laughs> um so I, there were a few things that i wanted to touch on sure. there um, can we just backtrack for the synopsis just yeah, for yeah. our listeners for a sec yeah so just uh, just to just recap the film is basically uh, a kid is getting a haircut it's all one shot it runs for seven minutes and then in the background there's a gentleman who's a, in business attire who takes a phone call from his, we just presume is his own son yeah. and he carries on this one-sided conversation and the boy getting his haircut in the foreground kind of inserts himself quietly 
imagining the boy's responses, yeah. but it's from his own life. Yeah. And so we just watched this play out over the course of the next seven minutes or so. Yeah. So interestingly, both characters seem to have these strained, strained father-son relationships, mm-hmm. but to, to varying degrees, I suppose. Um, it seems like the, the, the foreground character, the younger, the, the son, so to speak, um, has a much more strained relationship than perhaps the, the one between the father and son that's happening in the background. Yes. In, in this yeah. Other phone conversation. Yeah. Um, and so, um, I guess without speaking to the specifics of the conversation, just because I feel like you, which is like itself as, very as, generic as, as, in its own yeah, way. Yeah. Yeah. As, as someone who, um, and it, it kind of has to be generic in the sense that he's yeah. responding to a conversation that he's not a part of. Exactly. But yeah. what I, what I really liked about it was how, um, how natural the the dialogue went back and forth oh, cool. and and how it actually felt like they were talking to each other and it went in certain directions yeah. where like you know the father was asking the son on the phone about you know does he have a girlfriend and yeah. um and the 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 son in the foreground care they have names no, they don't yeah, actually. Yeah, so it's just, so just father son. <laughs> archetypes. Yeah, so um, the 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 physical son in the foreground getting his haircut, yeah. uh, the haircut guy. Let's call him. You just go Denat. The actor's yeah, name is Denat. Denat. Okay, so, so, yeah. so Denat, um, his response to that kind of goes down this path of you know like, well, no, I'm I'm I, I'm more so I live in isolation and I, I jerk off a lot and yeah. Um, so, but and so and so the the dialogue doesn't quite line up there, but. Um, it uh, yeah I, I don't know it 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 still felt of a piece in a way because because it's almost like it's almost like it's almost like the conversation is how it would go if the son on on the other end of the phone yeah. was responding truthfully as yeah. opposed to just responding in the superficial way that his his uh, father is expecting him to yeah, respond. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. it's kind of like it's kind of like there's this there's this mental disconnect between the father and son and so it, 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 when I was watching it yeah. I could almost I could almost even imagine that he was his actual father and that he was just this apparition sitting behind him and mm. that they were engaging in this phone conversation. And so that that was just just a passing thought and yeah. obviously not not part of the text of your film but oh, that's interesting. um um yeah it like like the background conversation is very superficial whereas the foreground conversation is very i want i want to i want to tell you about you know yeah. the issues in our relationship and yeah um all of these things that you're trying to mask and yeah. avoid while i'm trying to to put them out on the table yeah and the father just continues to say oh well you know like you should you should make sure that you like call her every day or whatever, or like yeah, whatever advice stuff. that he gives to, to, to right. the son about, about, you know, how he should engage with this girl. Yeah. Um, well, but, the idea is like, he's a, he's obviously not involved in the son's life day to day. So he, he kind of has to fall back on the cliched kind of, yeah. you know, you know, call her, you know, or do this or do that, you know, just as yeah. a way of building that trust. Yeah. But um, yeah, just, just that it was that it, that it has this, it has the way that the sh- the shot is structured. You have this physical barrier between the two because one's foreground, one's background, mm-hmm. and then um, on a on a on a script level, they're both talking about completely different things. I just found that to be a really interesting juxtaposition because, um, 
you know, if if the son was actually saying this, these things to his estranged father, it, that conversation would not go yeah. the same way because obviously yeah. this this type of father figure would certainly um, respond with with some amount of venom and you know yeah. try to try to take control and 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 kind of. Uh, explain his way out of out of you know his yeah. his um, inability to to parent in a, in a meaningful way. Yeah, for me, a lot of what I what I take away from the film when I was making it was you know um, uh, having a history of emotional repression you know in my family as well and with my in my relationship with my parents who are uh, who are great, but as with any family, you have of course tensions as you as you age. Yeah. And um, but I'm, one thing I've realized as I've gotten older is like you know. Yeah, emotional repression, the language that you speak when you come from an emotionally repressed world. Um, cinema, of course, is, is incredibly appealing <laughs> yeah. because it obviously provides a conduit for for those feelings to come out elsewise, otherwise, and to witness different ways in which they can come out. Um, and so, yeah, for that character, like this is him kind of seizing his chance to say what he really thinks but of course it's hidden in the language that no one else can understand in the room and it's you know um i was very interested in um one you know the, we shot the film in 2014 so uh it, before it was april 2014 so uh birdman didn't even come out <laughs> at that point but of course so like the whole like mania around like in a ritu and and his stupid one takes and stuff like that like <laughs> Uh, and even just one take like mania in general that was like defined like 2014 to 2015, 16. Yeah. Um, well, it wasn't that was 2013 actually. 2013. You're right. Yeah. But that's like Kuaran had already staked that out, right? With yeah. the children of men. So. And I would say that his approach yeah, is more considered. His is more, yeah, his is more, well, it's all Lubeshki, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but like Kuaran, I think, yeah, has more integrity. Um, I'm not a huge fan of gravity, but yeah. it, um, but yeah, so it, it, um, the film was not trying to be, you know, kind of caught up in that. It's, it was more like, uh, interested in, in the idea of, of real time, the one take. Yeah static you know the shot doesn't move it's yeah. entirely tripod uh so more of a european or even like uh when i showed the film at claremont Ferrand in uh last year uh it was in the competition there and i heard from one filmmaker who was like oh it's like ozu and i was yeah, like yeah. i was like what actually i've only seen one ozu film in my entire life so he wasn't oh, really? an influence on it but i can see what he means like but this the static and i don't know just but and, was, and, and the family dynamics and the family it's dynamics a yeah. Big, so big part was, of Ozu, yeah yeah totally that was completely like it didn't occur to me at all but um i guess i was trying to just make something it was my first film out of out of film school first professional short film mm-hmm. um and um and i wanted to just kind of make something that yeah was emotionally true to things that i was going through at the time um and and to play with the form play with narrative not just play with you know okay long take like this is interesting from an art house kind of perspective but as you were saying about the way that the dialogue overlaps like i was very concerned about about the film feeling open-ended feeling you know every time that he it's about kind of constructing narrative in the moment. Every time this kid tries to construct a narrative that he can apply to the conversation he's listening to. Yeah. It's frustrated. Yeah. So like the kid and it, and it's kind of it, the, the one shot nature of it allows you to build tension to, to the point where he eventually explodes and and actually yells at the, at the real person there because he's just like, what the fuck are you talking about? Which if I was making it today, I don't know if I would go that route. I I still feel like that's a bit, 
I mean, it's a natural kind of building, I think. Like, it, yeah. it's a natural oh, yeah. endpoint for the story. But yeah. uh, in some ways, I feel like in hindsight, I think it's a little cliched. But right, um, it, uh, yeah. But the, just the way, but the way that the way that the tension then just kind of sits there, and and you hold on the shot for another fifteen seconds or so. Mm. Uh, I, I think it. I think it. Well, allows you. It, it, it'll. It. It. It kind of. It keeps it grounded in reality. Yeah, and that reminds me of one thing I was going to say about it, which is that the the idea for me solidified when. Um, so that that barbershop is where I get my haircut. At the time that I had the idea, I was living in the. It's in the Burnaby Heights. It's called Top Barbers. The yeah. barber's name is Jim Calumcarium. <laughs> Vancouver listeners, go get a haircut from him. Yeah. He's awesome. His people are. His staff are awesome. Are awesome. Um, and uh, it's at Gilmore and Hastings. Anyway, hmm. I love that shop so much. I love Jim. Uh, so that's where I get my haircut. I've been going there for years, and I, I was going through a really rough time four years ago, um, five years ago just after graduating and I went in there to get my haircut and, and I realized I was just in a really bad spot that day. And, and, you know, the barber, I forget who it was, but anyway, one of the barbers was just like massaging my, my head as part of the, yeah, yeah. the haircut or even just glancing it. And then, and I realized like, this is the only human contact I'm going to have this week. Like yeah. this is the only physical touch that I'm going to have this week. Yeah. Cause I was in just such an isolated place at that time. Yeah. And I was, I almost broke down right there because I was devastated by that. But then I realized like, that's a really interesting idea for a film. <laughs> uh, this character who's going through this. Um, and then it took about a year to, I don't know, it kind of went away. And then a year later, um, was able to put more of the specific father-son dynamics and the the whole narrative structure yeah. onto it, but it started with that idea of basically being alone with yourself, even though you're in this this space that does offer you some sort of visceral connection. Yeah. And also the mat, you know, the barbershop, you know, the barbershop is one of the last like kind of enclaves of like masculine society in a certain right. sense, like like um, it's uh, I don't know, just like it's a bunch of guys like getting their haircut, yeah. you know. Um, uh, one of the barbers is, is a lady, but like, it's not, I don't know. Like it's just one of those things like you go in there and you're like, this feels like another period uh, in terms of how yeah. people, how guys interact with each other. Like there's just a different energy in the, in the place. Mm -hmm. And I was interested in like, this is one of the, yeah. And kind of like how, how, yeah. Um, how, how men and boys like relate when they are put back into that sort of setting. There's a certain, I think, sense of security. There's a certain sense of like kind of just ease um, that comes with that. Mm -hmm. um and uh i find that you know interesting uh for a character who's maybe kind of at home in that respect you know but at the same time they're still totally isolated from the people around them yeah and perhaps frustrated by other aspects of, of masculinity in terms of in terms of you know emotional avoidance and 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 those kinds of things that are represented in the father character mm, yeah yeah, lack of responsibility, or yeah. or um, or even yeah, yeah, just, just, uh, just the a, mistakes just, that people make, you know, and and you know, a, a very sort of uh, one one sided or um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like um, binoculars? No, like, like <laughs> you're uh, making he's making a binocular tunnel, face tunnel right visioned focus. Oh, tunnel vision, yeah, on like just making money and and you know supporting your family through, through yeah. economic means and no other means kind of thing yes that's um, true yeah which i want to just give a shout out to the actor who played the the father oh he's fantastic because uh michael maneri is a vancouver actor yeah. um he's a former newscaster from ohio yeah, yeah and other places and he uh he often gets cast as news guys because he has like that totally 
you know, down. Right. But um, I love what, like, you know, a lot of what I kind of wrote for the character, I think, was kind of like, st- kind of cliched, you know, and he really brought it to life. Like, yeah. he really, I'm just so grateful. I, I, know, I was blown away. For both both work. actors. Yeah. Like, I wrote it with Danat in mind as the kid. Yeah. Uh, but we found Michael through the casting process, and um, I'm just so grateful for, yeah, they both just fleshed it out so much. Yeah. He took what was on the page as, like, could have been very rote, and, and he just made it a person. Yeah. Um, great. someone you empathize with. So yeah. cool. Um, so we got time to discuss either Malik or Speed Racer. Oh my gosh! What's your pick? Oh goodness. Um, how much time do we have? I know we're uh, it's four twenty-five right now. Okay. Um. Oh, this is terrible. Sophie's choice. <laughs> Uh, you pick. Okay. Well, I, I I'm gonna pick Malik just okay. because because as someone who appreciates his films but um isn't really are able to articulate why. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could just explain Malik to me. We're gonna take like five hours. <laughs> <laughs> you pause, choose poorly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh. Okay. Well, I think we're referring particularly to late Malik. Probably is that uh, kind of or really just in general. In general, but, yeah. but but yeah, maybe just picking song to song as an example. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess song to song, which I a film is a, I love. Okay, I love late Malik. I love I love every single thing he's done since the New World. Yeah. Um, I l- mostly love his stuff he did before that, but I think there's definitely a progression from like from like good to great and the, it essentially starts with the new world yeah and i know people like to say the thin red line is his masterpiece but i actually think it's maybe his like worst film but well actually voyager time i don't know <laughs> it, seems like, it seems like there's <laughs> but, a lot of a lot of disagreement there because i mean i i would say yeah. days of heaven but like really and, and oh and days of heaven is amazing ever since ever since um ever since tree of life came out that's yeah. kind of been a focal point but yeah um For, i actually have never heard anyone saying the thin red line as the best yeah Interesting. No, yeah. it's one that I've seen a lot, especially like a lot of people who don't do the deep dive into a lot, all Malak. Yeah. I think like maybe Reddit, Reddit types or whatever, like, okay. like Thin Red Line. I mean, it's got the hook of the war film, right? right? So a lot of people can sort of be like, okay, it's got like violence and action. Yeah, so yeah. I can at least like get into it that way. Yeah. Um, anyway, I think anything from the new world on is a masterpiece pretty much. Yeah. And um, the tree of life though is, uh, oh gosh! I mean, it's it's been spoken about so much, so maybe I won't say much about that. I think it is one of the most essential films that has ever been made. Yeah, it's one that's every time I watch it, I just get deeper and deeper into it. I started out not as a huge fan of it; I thought it was good, but not great. And then I watch it about once a year now, and every time I do, it just leaves me more of a wreck than before. Yeah, but I think his 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 project, which then is played out through the rest of the films that follow Tree of Life you know the question of cosmic biography in a certain sense right so like this uh the idea of what is a man's life in context of the entire universe which is what tree of life does and i think there's you know there are some flaws in it with the creation sequence it's it's a little gets a little bit far afield of itself yeah but it um plays that so brilliantly that whole cosmic like the life of if you believe in eternal life you believe in like the soul and like that you know life after death um yeah, like what do our lives look like in in perspective with the vastness of eternity, mm-hmm. you know? And I think Tree of Life is trying to take a stab at that. And I love that it focuses so much on the childhood and like the things that are so formative to us as, as children, like the way our parents are, the way our siblings are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Malik, and this shows up in Tree of Life and, and I think in every film he makes after that like between to the wonder knight of cups and song to song you know he's he's really all about showing 
things that you don't see a lot in, in Western cinema per se, or maybe even at all, which is this idea of reconciliation, this idea that people, people, um, it's not just that they are looking for justice in their relationships, but like that forgiveness is an active element is a powerful element. That forgiveness is really the key, you know, and tree of life. It's as simple as the, the, um, the older boy being forgiven by his younger brother, you know, for, for, um, betraying him and, and hurting him. Um, and it's very simple, but then you, in song to song, you kind of have this more like romantic forgiveness, you know, of, uh, Rini Mara and, and, um, uh, what's his name? Frank Gosling. You know, coming back together and, and to a wonder, like, I don't know. There's just like this dance that happens in each of the films. I think he, I think Malik is so caught up in this dance of like love, love as the, you know, as a virtue, as this thing that enters people's lives, like the love, you could say divine love, love coming into someone's life and activating them mm-hmm. in order that they can love like that's essentially to the wonder uh to the wonder was so caught up you know in the responses to oh it's it's too malachy it's too this and it's like he's just getting started you know yeah, yeah, yeah. he's just he's just winding up like yeah no kidding. uh and i love uh he just seems to me i love him because he's especially his later stuff because it's so obvious to me that he is so concerned with like bettering people's lives yeah. and helping giving them like the tool not just the tools because i don't want to keep this in like a utilitarian sense but like like he's about his films each of those films to the wonder song to song night of cups is like in its own way kind of about us beholding people who are awakening to the idea that of what beauty is and in this very transcendental sense and beauty that can change their lives mm-hmm. um as a Christian, I would say, like, I believe that, yeah, that is a pathway to God, you know, yeah. that that sense of beauty. Um, and I see that all over his films. Um, I don't yeah. think you have to believe that to get something out of them. Yeah, I think, but, uh, I, I think what I connect to the most is, is like you're saying, um, a pathway. But, but the way I see it, or the way I would explain it, I guess, is just observing people given the opportunity to change yes and yeah. and not always seizing that opportunity yes um yeah. specifically with um um net of cups mm-hmm. um just with christian bale's character just going through this this litany of relationships and litany um, of yeah. <laughs> um and not being able to connect to any of them really but but ultimately i guess by the end of the film he does he does find someone yeah and whether or not that's, we never find out who she is really yeah, yeah or or if it is a positive or negative influence on his yeah. life but it seems like he's at least settled down to some degree but yeah. um yeah i, I just I, like i see that that whole the experience of watching that film and and perhaps all of them in general just as as kind of being yeah being presented with these opportunities to change and you know what what direction are you going to go in are you going to make the right change or the wrong change mm-hmm. and um and are you are you ultimately going to become a better person as a result of the relationships that you get into yeah um and yeah. but and 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 to your point of of from to the wonder on it, the the main criticism just being that he's just kind of gone down the rabbit hole or you know the snake yeah. eating its own tail or whatever whatever metaphor you want to use of him just kind of going too Formally, far into yeah. his own into his own formal playfulness but yeah i i see it as as almost refining a, a whole new process that mm-hmm. that 
people just aren't quite ready to yeah. to embrace at this point. And and that could just come across as, you know, explaining away the fact that it is just so so uninterested in narrative that you know like it just it's it connects with me on a personal level and so i'm mm-hmm. going to come up with excuses for why i think that is but i truly do believe that he is creating a new grammar in a sense like he's just he's he's so far afield of mm. of what other filmmakers are doing yeah. that it's it's hard to capture in a a thousand word review of of his yeah. work like it's interesting to put it that way because there are like you can definitely see influences in his work but he is such a unique artist and that like he diffuses those like in ways that yeah and obviously he has a style if anyone imitates the Malik way of cutting and steady camming and stuff like that then obviously they immediately they get, they get the whole oh you're being like Malik which which I find interesting and frustrating because I think he is opening up a formal pathway yeah. that other people should explore and and maybe it's still too early maybe maybe he has to not, not be alive uh, for for people to really sort of um, begin to accept that you know this formal school if it is that 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 he's kind of pioneering um, you know is something that will have legs after he's gone I, mm-hmm. I kind of hope it does I think it's going to be hard to find its way but I kind of hope people pick up the the baton um i see him as like for me tarkovsky is is extremely important as a one of the great filmmakers who integrates his personal life into um into cinema and so like his vision of cinema this this personal his cinema is personal it's indescribably personal mm-hmm. um but it's also universal and, and like there's that old proverb of or whatever of like you know the specific is universal which i i do believe a lot in um but with Tar- tarkovsky you can easily you know make the accusation like he gets so caught up in his own stuff like especially later in his career the same motifs repeating and it's like what is this all for but right. but it's part of about experiencing the mystery of a person transmuted through cinema or transfigured i don't know and malik i think what i love about malik is that he is the american version of that in certain ways but he's also very different and i think malik this is so important for american and canadian filmmakers to understand and to move forward with because uh, from where i'm sitting i look i've often looked at european and uh, Japanese cinema and, and like Ho Shao Shen and Taiwan and stuff and seen like all these sort of like new waves and different historical movements that have happened and, and sort of like the way that they were able to produce filmmakers very who are very personal in many ways, but they produce such formally like gorgeous, exacting, fluid films that take you in. And again, like we were saying earlier about Jesus of Montreal, like they're not really prosaic. They're not really about building blocks. They're more kind of these fluid experiences, more like music. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Malik is, he is the one who is bringing that very non-American influence. And I mean, American in the continental sense, Yeah, you know, uh, into North American cinema. And it's so important that he does that. Um, in, he's incarnating this, I guess you could say, for lack of a better word, transcendental kind of approach to cinema, um, you know, in, in an American narrative context. I think you can make the argument that someone like Brackage, who you can see some influences on Malik from Brackage. I don't know too much about that, mm-hmm. but I've seen enough um, people comment about that, that it is like a thing. In the, it's a thing. Um you know, okay, so maybe Malik isn't the first, maybe, but he certainly seems to be the first in the like narrative mainstream. You know, to like, at, you know, open up this sort of pathway of personal cinema and and be allowing people to experience. The thing that blows me away is that his his later films are so montage heavy, 
and um and i feel like he's redeeming in a certain sense like the principles of montage you know if you go with the whole soviet dialectic uh soviet filmmakers and all that like this idea that the cut is like the supreme moment of cinema the cut is what defines the cinema it's it's not about the continuity or the realism of like the image it's not about the image it's about moving to the next image so this is propulsive motion cinema is about propulsion you know which is a very mechanical it's a very industrial society idea Mm -hmm. and and i think um if cinema is going to have anything to say to humanity in the moving forward it's going to have to shed basically it's it's um it's formation as this industrial society you know this machine thing right Mm -hmm. uh we need to discover we discover what is truly the human value of it. And that's what I believe the great filmmakers of the 20th century and the ones working right now, they're the ones who understand this. But Malik, you know, he's actually kind of redeeming this kind of uh, atheistic, you know, Soviet dialectic, you know, uh, cut montage thing and, and bringing it into like the personal narrative of, of, um, you know, of a person's life. Uh, even just the way that people experience time Time is the medium of love and how we love each other, how we love others, uh, spouses, children, friends, whatever. Like time is the medium in which we live that out. And mm-hmm. Malik's um, later work has this way of, yeah, of compressing that, but also, I don't know, expanding it. Like it's, you just feel like you're seeing all these moments that mean, it is that, that you know, he's often compared to like Tarkovsky's Mirror or yeah. other films that are very memory centric. Mm-hmm. And it is like that. And I think that is, I think that is absolutely he, you know, one of the aspects of cinema in general that is, you know, ripe for exploration and it is deeply tied to the flourishing of like the art form, you know, uh, uh, tied to human help, helping people to understand their lives mm-hmm. and to live better lives. Um, so, so Malik, that's my spiel, is <laughs> teaching us to live better lives. Yeah, that sounds that's, way more. That's the uh, summary. No, it's more than that. I think he's <laughs> teaching us to look our eye, lift up our eyes, you know, to the wonder. I mean, we could talk about his music because the way, yeah. he, the way he uses music, like, um, ugh, there's just such an. The thing I don't understand is like, and maybe this is just being reactionary against the critics, but like, I just don't understand how you get offended at. It's like he's someone who really cares about people, and it's like, you know, he's just i think he's just concerned about people flourishing yeah. and and somehow that's like really offensive i guess <laughs> or is he's not he's not concerned about people flourishing in exactly the right way for some people one thing i will highlight is um and i love this is that in the last three films uh excluding voyage of time actually it shows up a little bit there too but he he's often playing with this idea that um and again, I think it comes directly from his own life is the sense I get of like, you know, each of those films to the wonder night of cups and song to song, maybe not song to songs. I don't think he was involved with music, but yeah. the other ones are definitely playing with aspects of his own biography. Right. Um, but there's this idea that like life, the richness of life is held back from these characters until they kind of embrace fertility, fecundity, uh, fatherhood, essentially, for the yeah. male characters. But for the female characters, that would involve motherhood. But it's this idea. It's not like just one or the other, but it's like this idea of of um, the family, you know, creating a family um, as, uh, as really um, providing, you know, something something deep, you know, for these people who are rootless. Um, and you can do that in a pat way, you know, some, maybe some people would argue that he does it in a very pat way. I don't know. I, I, but I, I think it's, I find it refreshing to see somebody at the top of their formal craft 
um, express and and of course like you know the way he thinks through cinema philosophically as well through his images and his cuts expressing these very you know these very traditional ideas like they are very traditional Mm -hmm. you know but i really i really find that fascinating and beautiful Mm -hmm. to see somebody um you know later and far far along in life trying to in a certain sense pass off some of what he's learned to to us and uh, i don't know if we as a film culture are uh, ready to receive it yet yeah but uh i think you know he's doing his best and the films will still be here and they're going to speak to um to those who are ready to to hear it so right on um i think that's all we've got for today but um i do appreciate you coming in and talking about your your films talking about canadian film talking about all that is malik and um again if you want to just repeat where people could find you on the interwebs oh yeah um and sorry nwdouglas.com or stoneridgefilms.com goes to the same place and uh, I'm on Twitter at nwdouglas perfect uh, you can find the podcast at www.filmedincanada.net for past episodes or on iTunes or wherever else you find your podcasts I get mine uh, in a black paper bag in the alleyway that sounds like Lynch, actually. <laughs> sounds like Mulholland Drive. Um, although I guess it would be a blue bag. It's maybe. not a floppy disk. Yeah. Um, although I guess no, he's not. He's not precise enough with color to <laughs> like certain things are evil or not or whatever. But anyway, um, www.filmedincanada.net. Email us at filmedincanada at gmail and uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Married to a Fly. Uh, that is all for today, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.